And if they then transmit the message to the bank that you're doing some kind of illegal rental, um, that's that's a problem. Then there's also a problem at the re time of resale, because if you have a, you know, a lease that's not supposed to be there or you're advertising a fiveplex when it's actually a fourplex. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with a returning guest, Chantal, who is a coaching client and a management client of mine. Um, thanks for joining me today, Chantal. Thank you for having me, Terry. Yay. Um, and today we're going to talk about kind of an interesting issue of subletting and basement suites. So this is something that it's a big, big gray zone um, and something where there's a lot of confusion that abounds. And just like Airbnb, there's like kind of a lot of technical, like little technicalities that you kind of need to know about in order to not get into trouble. And so, you know, Chantal, uh, we have a few questions. I, it, I'll leave it up to you whether you want to give us like a little bit of background as to, you know, your journey as an investor and why this topic is of interest to you. Okay. Um, so my journey as an investor started roughly about like five years ago. Um, I pretty much bought my parents' place. And so here I am today. But um, I just had these like burning questions about uh, subletting and what exactly are the laws, what landlords can and cannot do, and how to basically avoid temptation. Okay. So you're going to have to be a little bit more specific than that. What do you mean by avoid temptation? Okay. For example, because subletting, right? Like if I know a friend or somebody who's looking for a place, especially right now, given the cost of everything that has gone up, the cost of living. And if landlords are trying to basically like, you know, save money in a rent control environment like Quebec and someone comes to a landlord and say, hey, can you sublet your basement for, uh, let's just say a thousand or like $1,500. It looks like an illegal, like a legal suite, but it turns out it could be an illegal suite. So that's what I mean by temptation. Cause you're like, okay, yeah, sure. It's a friend or a family member. Hey, why not? Yeah. Not realizing you can get into a bunch of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So let's take that apart a little bit, because I think that's the form in which a lot of landlords will have that question. But there's actually kind of a checklist of things you need to know about before we begin to answer it in a proper way. So the first thing is when we're talking about like a basement suite, usually the pattern of how it is is you'll have like a main floor, ground floor unit that has some form of furnished basement that could look like an intergenerational or an additional suite. So the things that you could look out for is, you know, separate entrance, uh, additional kitchen, additional hydro counter or like electricity installation that um, would allow you to split the cost of the heating in some way. And you could also, if you want to know whether your suite is legal or not, the two places to look are uh, your tax bill or your deed of sale, okay? And so that's going to give you, especially the tax bill, is going to let you know at the city, at the municipality, how many units are currently registered, okay? So I happen to know, I think, that your 
property, which is a duplex slash triplex, is registered at the city as a duplex. Now you do have this, that would be called technically like an intergenerational, where you have a like a ground floor suite and then a basement suite that's connected by a staircase. There are separate entrances and then usually separate plumbing installation, separate um, kitchen, separate bathroom. But often the heating system is connected. And in your case, the heating system is connected with the main floor unit. So there's no way to split the heating bill. Now, the heating bill is not the be all and end all because in some cases, if the owner includes heating in both the rents of the ground floor and the basement unit, you can't say that a separate hydroelectricity account or heating account is what makes the determination of whether or not it's an illegal, a legal or an illegal suite. But it's an indication. If you have a separate, like a separate counter for the, the basement and for the main floor, that's a sign that someone at some point took it upon themselves to do things kind of in a kosher way to say each tenant pays for their own heating and each one has its own electrical panel. If you see a common electrical panel for two, what looks like two units, that's a that's a big red flag that it's it can be legal, but it's unlikely because usually building code stipulates that if there's a common counter, you need to have separate electrical panels for each unit because each tenant needs to be able to shut off their own breakers in case of a problem. So like imagine if you've rented two units and the panel is on the ground floor and the lights or some, uh, you know, appliance goes on the fritz downstairs, you can't actually switch the breakers off without going into the other person's unit. So that's kind of a, an indication that there's a problem. Also, like common water tanks is, is an indication that there's a problem. If you have two water tanks, one that's supplying the ground floor, one that's supplying the basement, that's another indication that somebody went the extra mile to actually separate things. But if it's one tank that's common to the two units, that should be an alarm bell. Now, let's say you have this like illegal suite that looks like it meets all the criteria to be transformed into something legal. Okay. And this then is quite technical because each municipality will have its zoning regulations for what you need to have in order to meet those guidelines to have a separate suite. Now, I know, you know, in Quebec, we our construction code, what it stipulates, like, for example, one is something that has to do with the size of the windows. So there has to be one meter of clearance from the ground level to the ceiling of the basement unit. So, for example, if you're thinking of these things where like you have these like tiny, you know, one foot high window and it's sitting right at just above ground level and then there, there's your ceiling, even if it's an eight foot ceiling, if the majority of the suite is more than one, less than one meter underground, the city is not going to give you a permit to create that as a separate unit. Okay. Then there's also laws about how the entrances and exits need to be done because you have to be aware that like a, an independent unit has to have two exits and it needs to be like an independent exit. So for example, if you have a door that goes into the garage that does not have some kind of an entrance onto the front street or the side of the house or something, that's another indication that the city probably will not give you a permit for that kind of suite because they assume that in case of danger, your emergency escape route can't be through a carbon monoxide garage. Okay, you have to have like a separate entrance in the front and a separate entrance to two exits really for, for your place. Um, now, the definitive way to know this is to get an architect. Okay, 
or if you want to do avoid the cost of an architect, basically like write down some of those specifications, go sit down at City Hall, and the person there, there's someone there who will show you the diagram that says, okay, this is our zoning regulations. Do you think that your unit meets those zoning regulations? And then if you if it does, then you can, you know, hire an architect to draw up a plan because the city, in order to make that unit um, legal, has to emit a permit for it. And everything revolves around that permit. It's going to change your tax bill. And then instead of having, like in your case, a duplex, you would have a triplex. So this is the path towards legality. And like, ultimately, if you're, you know, trying to purchase a rental property that has a suite like this that's not legal, you need to do that due diligence to know exactly what you're purchasing. If, as is your case, you kind of already took over ownership of that because it was like a family property, you could do some due diligence with the city to see what is the long-term potential of transforming that. Like, is it with, you know, whatever, 20K of investment, 15K of investment, can you have that suite be made legal? Okay, so that's always the first option because you're adding a basement suite like that is is going to make your property value go up. The bank is going to lend you more money. You're going to be able to legally have more rent. Now, I think if we go back to the temptation part of the question, what happens if you have a, a suite like this and it's just kind of empty real estate? And I actually just worked on a, trans- a transaction like this with um, some other investors who were starting out who purchased a building that was listed as a fiveplex. So the listing on MLS was as a fiveplex. But when we got there, all of those red flags popped up. So I, I noticed that there was one electrical panel for the two, you know, the main floor and the basement unit. I noticed there was one hot water tank. I noticed that there were those like really small windows um, that are too close to the ground for the city to ever have emitted a permit that that would be an independent suite. And then lo and behold, we start digging and we discover that on the tax bill, it's listed as a fourplex. So this means clearly that building is its destination is to be used as a fourplex. But now there's two separate kitchens. There were actually two leases in force when my clients purchased the building because the old owners didn't do the due diligence properly, probably didn't understand what they were buying. And so this is that's a problem. It's a problem from the point of view of the insurance because you're basically illegally renting something with a rental contract. And should anything go wrong, you know, a fire is even worse, something that has to do with the fact that like there's not the appropriate amount of entrances and exits or that there's only one electrical panel and the tenant doesn't have access to it. Like those tenants are entitled to units that are to code and that are allowed to be there. And basically, like you're engaged in kind of an illegal practice by renting that. Now, you know, you could, if you inherit a building like that, you can say, well, the old owner was already exploiting it this way, or I didn't know. But if you have to do an insurance claim and then, you know, either there's some kind of damages or the tenants are expecting to be relodged while they fix whatever it is, the insurance is not going to pay out as they should. So like in terms of your risk, like the main risk with this kind of situation, I would put the top risk as the insurance, because if ever something goes wrong, the tenants can come back against you for renting something illegal. The insurance might not pay out. Right. And then after that, of course, you have the bank because you probably have a loan on the property and the bank will finance according to what's on your tax bill. So if the building is zoned as a fourplex, but it's rented as a fiveplex, First of all, you can't really have five leases. They will only take four revenues into account. 
Um, and should the bank discover that you're doing something illegal, they can call the mortgage. Okay, so they can require you to pay back the mortgage, and then you're going to get like a little check mark next to your name at the bank and have trouble potentially financing it again. Have I ever seen this happen? I have not. Um, I have seen cases of insurance companies not paying out because people are renting in a way that they're not supposed to rent that I have seen. As far as the bank putting their nose into something, really, to me, that is something that would happen after you have an insurance claim. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Because the insurance in the worst case has to speak to the bank. And if they then transmit the message to the bank that you're doing some kind of illegal rental, um, that's, that's a problem. Then there's also a problem at the re time of resale, because if you have a, you know, a lease that's not supposed to be there or you're advertising a fiveplex when it's actually a fourplex, what happened in that transaction is my client's got a huge discount um, because basically the, the seller was advertising something with five incomes that only four incomes. So now the question is, you've taken over this unit, like there are basically like physically two suites there but you're only legally allowed to rent one suite. What can you as the owner of that do? And so the answer is that there's kind of like a bit of a way around this, but it involves um, the tenants signing basically a master lease, okay? Which means that you could rent to a group of people. So for example, you rent to a ground floor tenant and then you rent, you put them into like a group on a common lease with the person who's going to occupy the basement. Now, this means that legally, those two people are bound in the same space. So they have to have probably one hydro account, one electricity account, one insurance account with both of their names on it. So you can see where the problem starts here, because now all of a sudden you basically have like two tenants who are being treated as one group of people. So if you have some kind of informal setup where, you know, there's a family member who wants to like move a friend in or like have something like that, um, that might be a situation in which you could set something up. Or if those tenants know each other in some way, they might be willing to like go in together on a place like that for some kind of small for some kind of discount. Right. Like that's a, a potential avenue. But in order for it to be legal, you need to have a master lease with all the names on the master lease. And then probably realistically, you're going to end up having to assume some costs um, of maybe paying for the heating for both people or doing something um, that treats them as if, I mean, they are on one lease. Legally, they're one entity. Yeah. And then the other problem becomes also in terms of the severability of the rent. So when you have more than one person on a lease, there's this um, severability clause. Okay. So you can either if you have, let's say, three tenants, you can either stipulate each one owes, let's say the rent is $1,500, each one owes $500, $500, $500. If you make them severable, it means that each is only responsible for their $500. So let's say the basement person stops paying, but the ground floor person is still paying. 
you can only go after the basement person for their the amount they owe you. You cannot go after both tenants for the full amount. But so so this is a way you can sort of sell that to prospective people to go onto a master lease and say, okay, well, you know, I can structure it into the lease contract that each one is responsible for their own rent amount. But realistically, because they can only have one insurance policy and because they're going to have to share certain responsibilities, um, plus if something goes wrong, you might have to evict one and not the other. Then they both have to go to court. They're going to both have the court order will be naming them both, right? Like one will, it will say, okay, we exclude this person who's paid their rent, but they will still be named in any court order. So like as a tenant entering into this kind of a situation, it's not the best option for you because you're sort of like hide, you're in bed with someone legally. Yeah, it sounds a little bit convoluted, like a little bit messy as well, because somebody doesn't want to be tied to another person who properly did not pay the rent. So things can get a little dicey. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like that's the, you know, in terms of what do you do as a landlord to protect yourself, but also, uh, you know, bring in some extra revenue? Well, the answer is like, this is the legal way forward, but it has some fairly large drawbacks for the tenants. And so either in practice, what I've seen is either it's people who know each other. So, you know, friends or, or extended family or something like that who wants to, you know, rent out an additional place. They already have some sort of relationship that makes them more comfortable getting into this yeah. or else you're offering a large discount um, to someone and then make sure that they really understand properly what they're getting into because since it is convoluted and a little bit unusual, like it's a way to make that situation legal, but it's it's not ideal for the tenants. And who would be Citing, okay, you said friends and family members. Would this work in a, for someone who's elderly and retired? Would, that, would this situation work for them? Well, I mean, I think it's really, this is a very much, very much a case-by-case case sort of a thing. Like where I have seen this, and to be totally transparent, this is actually how I started my career. So I used to have students who wanted to live with multiple people in a unit. So it would be three bedroom units. The students wanted to have this kind of community aspect. And um, the first properties that I purchased and that I managed had these like larger units. Okay. So like three, four bedroom units. Um, and then the students would rent, would want to rent by the room. But because you're not allowed to divide up a unit like that and rent by the room, the solution is you make a master lease for all four rooms and then all of the occupants are on that master lease. OK, and this tends to work well with students because they, you know, like to share their living space. They're younger. They maybe have a lower budget and they don't want to take the responsibility of like renting a four bedroom unit on their own and then portioning out the, the rents. Right. So like if you as a landlord are able to make a master lease like that and then be like, okay, well, we're going to make you all severable. So all four of you just owes a portion of the rent. Here's how it works with the insurance. Your four names have to be on the contract. Here how is it, how it works with the hydro account. Four names need to be on the contract. Like basically you are packaging them together and saying like, you guys now become roommates. So, I mean, with retirees, like from what I know, also some of the informal, like sort of a, not exactly a care home, but like places where like multiple seniors will share like one residence, you could run that on a similar system. Um, now, what are the, I don't have personal experience with like running that to know what are the specific drawbacks, but like I could see that, you know, being a model that works as somebody maybe needs less space, 
especially if you have a basement unit and it becomes like more difficult for the person to go up and down the stairs. And so they're like using the basement unit less. Like you're basically talking about the person taking on a roommate. So you're asking me like, who does it work for to have a roommate? There's a lot of people, lots of people that that works for, but it tends to work for people who are comfortable with having joint responsibilities at the very least when it comes to insurance and, and like rent payment and stuff like that. Because even if there's independent kitchens and there's no sharing of common space, realistically, there's still legal responsibility that's shared for, for the rental of that area. Okay. <laughs> While you're talking and the wheels are turning in my head, so that's why I'm kind of quiet because I'm really listening. Are <laughs> you taking notes? <laughs> Did you have any other sort of um, up questions that surrounding that issue? I guess more on the money aspect, but I, pre I think pretty much you have already answered the questions. So the money aspect, can you be more specific? Uh, like, okay, so for example, is it best to take, because if the home has equity in it, right? Is it best to take the equity out at the time of renewing the mortgage or when it when is the best time? Okay, so let's, um, you know, bookend this within a discussion of like basement renovations because that's kind of what we're talking about. And then we can sort of generalize it out from there. So, um, you know, I think one of the, the off-camera questions that um, you had for me was to do with, okay, what happens if, let's say, a landlord doesn't have the money to renovate that basement suite or to like get it up to code. And this is actually like, it's actually a common problem. Like this is specifically that, you know, um, transaction that I just worked on for the the illegal five flex. Like this was exactly what happened. So, you know, the, my clients were expecting to buy a building with five units and then they get there and they discover, wait a second, there's actually only four units and we have this like large ground floor basement thing with two kitchens that was rented separately. Now we're going to take this over and like, we're going to end up having like fairly large renovations to do either to put it back the way it was because that's the other option right is that like you can turn that unit back into one large unit and rent it as one large unit right like if you know the tenants either have to leave or not leave because you are bringing things back to code so how do you finance that if it's at the time of purchase um obviously you can negotiate money off the sale or you could also apply for a construction loan um and that you can actually do at any time. So you don't have to necessarily be at the point of refinancing. If you have a certain amount of work that you want to do, for example, you want to like add a basement unit or you want to take apart a basement unit that's been like illegally created or something. If you go to the bank and you come with, a, you know, your architect's plans and your estimates, the bank will give you a construction loan that gets added to your mortgage that is then dispersed according to the different moments at which the work is completed. So, you know, independently of whether, you know, you want to be taking equity out of your home to do another investment, well, like another investment could be buying a new property or it could be investing money in your current property to help you make more money. And so for someone in your situation who, you know, from what I know about your basement suite, um, it seems to me that it might meet all the criteria to actually be a basement suite. So in which case I would do my due diligence at the city, find out, can I get the zoning changed? Um, what's it going to cost for me to bring that up to code? And then if I don't have the money to do that, then I'm going to go to the bank with my my permit from the city and my estimate and be like, look, guys, I want to go from a duplex to a triplex. Here's my plan. And they're going to have to change your mortgage anyways at that time, because anytime you make major changes to the property, 
you have to inform the bank. That's going to be a clause in your mortgage. And definitely moving from two units to three is exactly the kind of change that the bank needs to know about because they're going to then change the financing criteria. Good to know. Okay, so unless you have any other questions relating specifically to subletting and um, illegal units, I think we're going to just um, stop there because we're kind of towards the end of time. And I think we've done a, a fairly good overview of it. Did you have any other questions on this topic? No, that was pretty much it. All right. Well, Chantel, thank you. This is uh, was a product of like an off-camera discussion that we had actually a couple of months ago. And uh, Chantel was kind enough to come on the show and uh, share her questions with everybody so that all of you guys can um, you know, profit from the conversation. And I think that this is maybe not a conversation that concerns all investors, but for those who encounter these kind of situations where there are sketchy basement units or things that have been rented in a weird way or facing temptation <laughs> to sign leases that maybe you shouldn't sign. Um, I think this is definitely some good information. So I want to just, you know, thank you for coming in and sharing the time in the conversation with me. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Chantel. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.